Welcome to the podcast of Central Church. This is our latest weekly message. So I, I guess, yeah, probably what we're going to do is I'm going to just talk about uh, feminism, about the idea of uh, feminist theology a little bit, and then we're going to look at this passage, but we'll kind of look at the passage together rather than um, me just talking about it. We'll kind of read it and get, get your thoughts, and particularly the thoughts of um, the women here uh, today on that. So I'll, I'll read out a, just a definition of feminism first, and then I'll, I'll just talk a little bit about my journey with it. Um, so feminism sort of broadly is um, a range of socio-political movements and ideologies, potentially, um, that aim to define and establish the political, economic, personal, um, social equality of people regardless of their gender. Um, and importantly, feminism holds that the position that societies have prioritised the male point of view and that women have been unjustly treated um, throughout the world in some of those spaces. That's kind of, well, that's the, the Wikipedia definition of feminism with a couple of little small tweaks from, from me in there. The other thing that I have heard feminism described as really crudely is, um, is essentially that um, women are human, is the, the broad definition of it. Women are human and that kind of sounds obvious, but from back from Aristotle even, there was sort of this position held um, and it's been held in the church too in lots of ways that um, the humanity of, of women has not been honoured or listened to and so maybe feminism is a movement back towards um, just the fact that women are human and deserve equality uh, and so um, my own my own journey with this is um, not been one that I've probably intentionally gone on I think I just sort of grew up in the cultural waters of of Australia and and I think just I didn't probably realise some of the assumptions that I had about my own role and the role of women until until Karen and I got married, actually. And then all of a sudden I was faced with the dynamics of a relationship um, with a very intelligent and capable woman and had to navigate some of the, the things and probably the, the things in my own ego, actually, was what probably what I had to, to deal with. And, and suddenly I could see a little bit more clearly the ways in which I had been shaped to believe that I should be the one that's leading and that takes the initiative in things and says what happens or that should even just sort of um, be in charge essentially. And, and so probably for the last 17 years, part of my journey has been unwinding and undoing some of, some of those things in my own ego as well as um, hopefully learning to, to champion um, Caro and the other women that are around in my life. So that's a little bit of my journey. Uh, but I wanted, I, I thought, I don't know about if this is anyone else, I never learnt about anything to do with, about feminism at school. Is that maybe, I think now kids probably do, I know Freya's done some stuff on it at school, but I had never, it was like a dirty word probably when I was growing up in school. It was never something that was taught in history or or anything like that. Um, so I'll, I'll really quickly go through some of the things I've kind of just learnt doing this. Um, 
and yeah, so you might already know all, all of these things or some of these things might be new. So Oren, if you want to just pop the first slide up, there's, um, oh, hi, hi Oren, hi, Chris, sorry, <laughs> do it from there, the clicker. Um, so there's, there's sort of four waves of feminism that have occurred through history. There's a bit of debate whether the fourth wave that we'll talk about in a second has actually happened yet or whether that's still something we're transitioning towards. Um, but the, f the first wave feminism was sort of late 1800s, um, 1900s, so 20th century. Um, and it sort of was largely around the equality for women, particularly in things like voting rights. So it was particularly a movement towards voting rights. And it was essentially something that was driven by white, middle and upper class women. Um, second wave feminism was 60s through to the 80s. Um, and it was looking at things like reproductive rights, sexuality, discrimination that was happening in the workplace, um, and sort of also building on some of the first wave things. Of course, these things are just things that have been sort of chunked up into segments afterwards. I don't think anyone was like, oh yeah, I'm a second wave feminist. Um, third wave feminism was more recent, 1990s, up until more kind of current times, really. Um, and it was building on second wave things, but looking at kind of the global issue, globalisation, um, and particularly, I guess, the changing media landscape has had lots of challenges for what that has meant for women, um, and, and also starting to look at things like gender identity as well. And then fourth wave feminism that perhaps we are in now, some would say we're, we're, we're not really, is looking at this idea of um, inclusivity, diversity, and intersectionality, so this idea that there's a whole bunch of different um, factors that contribute to inequality in our world. And so it's not just gender, but it could be the colour of your skin that in, has interplay with that and that um, really affects people's uh, privilege in this world. Um, and also, this idea... Oh, yeah. Yes, totally, yeah, yeah. And so that's, that's part of the critique that has, that I think is starting to come in, in this fourth wave or whatever, is that essentially this, a lot of this movement has been a Western white movement and um, feminism, while has done, it, yeah, has done amazing things, has often been something that has, um, in its early stages, particularly just f um, worked for the rights of white women. Um, and so, yeah, that's definitely a factor as well. Um, and I think each of these sort of movements, like, like any historical movement, the later ones sort of critique the earlier ones, and that's sort of been, um, yeah, essential growth for it. And there's, uh, there's a whole bunch of other ways other people would know much more about than I would, but like different types of feminism, there's social feminism, radical feminism, Marxist feminism, there's a whole bunch of different sort of styles and things that would probably overlap with each other a little bit as well. T Taliban feminism. <laughs> I don't know about that one. Um, <laughs> um, so, uh, in thinking about this, and probably even reflecting on my own my own journey with it, I think that um, people in the world today, probably like in Australia, people would, I think, on almost every level, agree with the ideals of what feminism is all about. Um, but maybe would just steer clear of it because of the perceived sort of more extreme nature of it, the bra-burning kind of stereotypes that we might have heard. Or maybe even 
probably more commonly, I would think, is that we um, are blind to the need for it because of our own privilege. And, um, you know, I think it's easy in our world to ignore things that don't, don't directly affect us. And so particularly that's even in this, in this uh, case, it's more of a problem for men who it's more, much more convenient for us to ignore the inequality that's happening when we're the beneficiaries of it. Um, so, Chris, maybe you can pop the next slide up. This is um, just a, a, a somewhat limited graphic, but one of the things that I think it's really important to understand that feminism kind of helps us understand, and this is that idea of intersectionality and things as well, is that essentially um, the little crown at the top, I realised much more clearly as I was doing this that I fit every part of what is happening in this picture. If you are a white, straight, not poor, cisgender male, then the world is our oyster. It's set up to be the place where we can thrive. And in any of those categories, as you move away from that position at the top, you are moving more towards disadvantage. Um, and yeah. Oh, uh, yeah, no, so I did, put di I did put disabled at the bottom, but yeah, no, I think, yes, I, I think able-bodied is definitely the top. The list was just getting <laughs> quite long, but yeah, no, I agree. I think that disability is another thing that is, yeah, hugely affecting our world. So, and there's, there's probably a lot more things that, that I haven't included there as well, but essentially, if you move away from that norm in any direction, um, you are losing privilege. And the way, I think the way that you lose it is different for probably different parts of those categories. It looks a little bit different um, if you're a person of colour than if you're um, someone that has a disability that, to someone that is living in poverty. The type of um, privilege that you lose is a little bit different, but essentially the, that idea that um, yeah, there, there is a way that the world is set up that, that privileges and essentially puts people in positions of power and it's the whole capitalist system is set up so that that sort of cube stays in that orientation. Um, and so, yeah, I think this is part of what feminism does is it sort of points out this, yeah, this inequality um, and, yeah, it highlights, highlights that for us. Um, and so I, I was thinking about this because I think there's this idea that, well, maybe, maybe what we want really is just equality. And like in, said in that definition of feminism that I read out before, it says um, it's setting out for the equality of all people, which sounds really good. And I think um, the ideal of that is a good thing. Um, but what that really means is in, a, in an ideal world, then feminism wouldn't need to exist which is probably true. If we had true equality, then there would be no need for, for feminism. And so I think maybe some people would be like, well, I don't, I, I don't think feminism's a good thing. I just, I'm an egalitarian. I think that it's good that all people just have an equal say. And I was, just, I was reflecting on this in the last couple of weeks, and I think the parallel that came to mind for me was the, the idea of Black Lives Matter, and I'm sure everyone heard about the sort of the counter movement that was all lives matter and this idea that no no it's not just 
Black Lives Matter, everyone, we're all equal. And on one level, that's, that's really true. Like all, all lives matter, of course, that makes sense. But that statement is um, denying the inequality that actually is in existence. And it's, it's like when, if you're making a, a cake or something and you've not put nearly enough sugar in, and you're like, oh, no, all ingredients matter. Let's just increase the amount of all ingredients then the cake's not going to end up very good. And I think that this is what like, the Black Lives Matter movement and, and, and feminism does, is says that there is an imbalance here, and so we need to do something to redress that in, um, in favour of women, in this case in particular. Um, and so we'll move on to thinking a bit about the church and women, everyone's favourite combination. Yeah, <laughs> it's... Um, it's interesting because throughout the history of the church, throughout the history of Christianity, there have been women that have been of significance and played an important part. But despite that, that there always seems to be this status quo that gets reverted to where the systems of capitalism and power revert and, and redress <laughs> that the listening to and the... Um, hearing of the voices of women and so the church's history we've got we've got lots of examples of amazing women that have done amazing things but still we've got a long history of in, injustice and not listening to the voices and not having women in positions of of power or in places that they would be seen um, very much in the church and so I think feminism and the church and this idea of feminist theology is something that also has got a history dating back to the first first waves of feminism. So um, I'll, I'll read out just a, another definition. So this is, in thinking about feminist theology, it's a, um, a theological movement that is intended to re-examine um, scriptural teachings on um, women and on women's roles from a woman's perspective. Um, and it attempts to counter arguments or practices that place women in inferior spiritual or moral positions. And I think um, we've all seen the way in which uh, the church and Christianity can sometimes blame women for things that happen in our world. And going back to, like, I remember even as, as, a, as a kid hearing people go, like, blame things on Eve. <laughs> and actually, I still, I still hear in, in different circles this thing of, like, oh, it's Eve's fault that this happened. And so there's kind of, like, this embedded thing in in our in our church history that yeah is just is horrible. Um, but in part of when I was sort of reading in preparation for this, if you want to put the next slide up, I think it's this. I came across this. I had never heard about this. This is called. Has, any, has anyone heard of the woman's Bible? It it sounded like I was having a laugh with Beck about this last night. The the, the like the pink covered, um, like. Yeah, yeah, girls study with the girls study Bible or the um, warrior princess Bible that you might get with a nice cover on it. Um, this is definitely not that. This was published in like 1895 or something. There might have been a couple of editions of 1895, 1898. Well, so I, I, I haven't I haven't read it. I only just came across it. But this idea that back in the late 1800s there were women that essentially I think like this was a commentary from women's perspective, looking at passages throughout um, essentially the whole Bible and, and providing commentary that 
probably was come from a perspective that hadn't hadn't been listened to for such a long time. So yeah, amazing. That that's that very first waves of feminism. There were also women that were championing the reading of the Bible in more responsible ways that listen to listen to all voices. Um, and I want to read out a poem that kind of deals with a little bit with this. So this idea, because we see in the Bible horrendous things that happen to women and it is a genuine wrestle with what we do with those passages um, that, um, yeah, I just, there's terrible things and they can't be held up as um, an example of what to do. So what do we do with them? And so I think there's been different arguments throughout time that say, some people saying, well, that we should be amending what that looks like and other people saying, no, we can't change what's in the Bible because it's the Bible and all these sorts of arguments. So I want to just read out a, a poem by um, a woman called Nicola Slee and it's called Texts of Terror and I'll just um, preface this by saying that there's, yeah, there's some strong language in this and so, um, yeah, just if you... Um, if you need to take some space or do whatever, um, yeah, just just be aware of that. Um, so yeah, I'll read it out, and Chris, that's up there as well. Yeah. Should we remember Hagar, Tamar, Jephthah's daughter, and Lot's? Should we tell of their wretched lives to our daughters? Should we speak on our lips the tales of torture, misery, abuse, and violence? Would we do better to consign them to silence? We will listen. However painful the hearing, for there are, for still there are women the world over being raped, being whipped, being sold into slavery, being shamed, being silenced, being beaten, being broken, treated as worthless treated as refuse until there is not one last woman remaining who is a victim of violence we will listen and we will remember we will rehearse the stories and we will renounce them we will weep and we will work for the coming of the time when not one baby will be abandoned because of her gender not one girl will be used against her will for another's pleasure. Not one young woman will be denied the chance of an education. Not one mother will be forced to abandon her child. Not one woman will have to sell her body. Not one crone will be the cast off by, by her people to die alone. Listen then in sorrow. Listen in anger. Listen to the texts of terror. Let us commit ourselves to working for a world in which such deeds may never happen again. It's pretty full-on, isn't it? But, but beautiful, and I think kind of sums up, I think, uh, like what I think is the, the power of feminist theology is to to look and to listen and to sit with the pain of injustice that has happened um, but also to commit to change in, in our world in in all of the ways that that needs to happen
Um, and so I think just, just to finish up before we, um, before we start to have a, look, have a look at our text, which is thankfully not a text of terror, um, but I, this is a, um, a quote by Sarah Bessie, which again, I th- it sort of has some intense parts in it, but I think, yeah, is a beautiful way of stating what, what the idea of what we should be working towards as feminists and as Christians and and how those two things can work together. So she says, One needn't identify as a feminist to participate in the redemptive movement of God for women in the world. The gospel is more than enough. Of course it is. But as long as I know how important maternal health is to Haiti's future, As long as I know that women are being abused and raped, as long as I know girls are being denied life itself through selective abortion, abandonment and abuse, as long as brave little girls in Afghanistan are attacked with acid for the crime of going to school, and until being a Christian is synonymous with doing something about these things, you can also call me a feminist. Nineteen eighty-four. Yeah. Okay. Um, and so I think this is that brutal but hard cry of feminism and of um, Christian feminism is that, as people of faith, we should be like our faith should be synonymous with moving towards justice for those that that do not experience it in this world, and particularly women. And so that's the early challenge that I want to just leave us with, is that that's that's what we're called to be. And I think as a community, we um, uh, clearly we listen to the voices of women really well, but I think um, there's always a call to continue to move towards um, justice and equality in not just this space, but outside these walls as well. Um, and so I want us to to read this passage of the woman anointing Jesus, um, but I want us to, to model listening to women. So the challenge will be that um, women, if you're happy to, to, to do this, that we just want to listen to your voices. So we're going to sort of do it, I thought we'd do it like a bit of a Lectio Divina where um, we read out the passage a couple of times and just sit with it. Um, and then if, if you're happy to offer thoughts, it could be about some of the stuff we've just sort of talked about in light of this passage or it could be something that's just jumping out at you as we look at this passage from, um, the, from a, a female perspective of Jesus' interaction with this woman and the other people around her. And um, I'll get... I might get someone else to run around with the mic when we do that. But um, maybe, Cara, do you want to read that out for us? <laughs> oh, okay. Mark 14, 3 to 9. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, A woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar 
and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you and you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. So we might just, just sit with that for a moment and if there's parts that are jumping out at you or making you feel uncomfortable or anything in between, just yeah, I encourage you just to, to read over them and sit with them and let that speak to you and then we'll see what people want to share. Oh, um, yeah. Does anyone have any anything that thoughts coming out they're happy to share with us? This thought is different to the ones that I would have traditionally had. Um, and that is the experience of the woman, uh, which is, in my experience, often been the experience of women, is that her, um, her action was shamed. Her generosity, her um, outpouring, her best attempt at communicating something deeply personal and precious, that the response of the institution was to shame her and diminish and dismiss what she did. And Jesus' response to that was to rebuke that, and that's very powerful. Thanks, Linda. Um, I guess I was just thinking about the extreme nature she had to go to to be noticed or to be seen. And I, I don't know, I was just thinking about that and spaces that that's the case for women. Um, I was struck by the ending this time round uh, where Jesus kind of um, elevates her to a point of kind of being memorialized uh, in the preaching of the gospel and just uh, in response to the shaming of her, he, he honors her in like a pretty profound and significant and spiritual way um, and holds her up as a bit of a model in terms of uh, devotion, really, and significance. Um, and the fact that he links it to the preaching of the gospel, I think, is really fascinating as well. And then he doesn't just leave it at that and say, because her actions have this kind of result and it's prepared me for burial and it's significant in that way, he actually does it so that she can be remembered as well and that kind of personal 
note at the end, I think is so fascinating. Um, it's not just this kind of pragmatic <laughs> kind of example of loving God. It's actually, she needs to be remembered for that. Her personhood is recognized by Jesus. Um, that struck me this time around. Yeah. Um, I noticed that the people who are present are annoyed and they're like, oh, we could have done something better with this money. And there's that kind of idea of control and who deserves, you know, the deserving poor and all of that sort of thing. But really it's just an excuse that they're not doing anything at all to help or liberate anybody. So. Um. One of the first things that um, stood out for me was the, you know, the woman being shamed. And um, we've spoken before about shame here and how um, when somebody is shamed, you know, they sort of lose their voice. Here we have a story written by a man. We have the others at the table speaking. We could assume that they're also men. We have Jesus speaking about the woman and, yes, he is honouring her. She acts in the story, but she doesn't have a voice and he doesn't ask her to speak, to defend herself. You know, he steps in and speaks for her. So in one sense, it's a beautiful story of Jesus sort of standing up and honouring her, but she, yeah, she is nameless and she's voiceless in the story as well, so... I feel that there's still something sort of lacking. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, I I feel a similar thing. It's like the I think one of the things that annoy not annoy I, I can say I'm annoyed at the Bible um, is that she is nameless, and yet we get the name of, of what home they're in. Like, who cares? That they're at the house of Simon the leper. He's not a person in the story. Um, he's never mentioned at all ever again in like the biblical narrative. But the and this is where I think it's possible to see some of the culturally relevant misogynistic writing in the Bible, in that the writer was thought it worthy to name Simon, who was a leper, who was probably a healed leper. We presume otherwise he's not having anyone to dinner in his house and had spent presumably chunks of his life with his flesh rotting off his body and living in isolation. And yet he's considered to be worthy to be named higher than the nameless woman. And I feel sad about that because I feel like there is a lot of nameless women throughout history who have done incredible things and, they're, yeah, they're never known. And I think we can, it's okay to see this in scripture and still hold it, still hold scripture as sacred, but also see the ways in which it does, it is a product of its time. Um, the line that stood out to me was um, Jesus saying she did what she could. And I just find that so comforting. It's like, she did what she could. <laughs> like, I don't know. I like I don't know. I think as a as a woman, as a, I think as, especially it's Mother's Day. Like as a mum, you know, you want to fix everything. You want 
to give the best to everyone around you in general all the time. You're judged at a higher standard. The dads are, you know, dads go to the shop with their kids. Their kids are being naughty. Be like, wow, look at that dad taking their kids to the shops. Mom has the same naughty kids at the shops. And it's like, wow, that mom really doesn't, isn't doing a good job, you know. So, but I just, I just feel like imagining Jesus just looking at me and saying, she, she did what she could. I don't know. It's very comforting. I think that reference, she did what she could, is actually about the crucifixion rather than a more generalized thing. She's done what she can to prepare him for death. Um, so I think, it's, I think it's more specific than just, oh, she did what she could. I think it's actually particular to the circumstances. Anyway, um, I, I have read a, like a, is it, this is something that, well, I don't know if it's helped me. It's certainly feminist theology that recognises that in the Bible, women are usually only allowed to be mothers or whores. Um, they're, the two, they're the two kind of character options for women in, in the Bible. Yet men are really allowed to be deeply complex characters who grow and are transformed and have nuance. And you sort of see the development of any of that, even in you know the stories of Peter or Paul or any of them. And yet women are often just characterized very, very one-dimensionally. And yeah, they're either lifted up as mothers or denigrated as whores. And in this story in Luke, um, the woman is a sinful woman. Um, it's sort of left un, sort of unspecified in Mark and Matthew, but there is that sense of like, I, I feel like in that sense, no, women are complex and women grow and women are, we transform and we are, we have agency, but we're often not represented like that. Um, I think obviously it's a sexist time where women are really only seen by their role in connection to men, whether they're mother, daughter sex worker in relation to men or woman of speculative relationships with men. Um, there's probably not a lot of women talking in places. Um, so obviously we would want her to have a voice and for her to not just be a silent character, but it's a story written by men in a time where women wouldn't have a voice. And I think if we see you know, Jesus as embodiment of God and God being beyond gender, we can sort of see it as a story where you know God is with us, experiencing our experiencing our experiences, seeing us. So I guess Jesus sees her beyond the shaming or the judgment that's relevant to the time, and probably at this time he has a voice where she doesn't, and so he's speaking on her behalf, which has its problems. But I guess, yeah, if you bring it higher and you see it as God and in our day-to-day -day, how God sees us when we don't have a voice and when we're in places where we're not allowed to speak or we're seen in certain lights, that he always, they always see our perspective and what we're going through and acknowledge what we are doing when it isn't acknowledged or it can't be understood. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. I think that's a, a beautiful way to, to end our looking at this passage. Um, and I'll resist trying to bring all that together somehow, um, except just to say to all the women amongst us, 
um, thank you. Thank you for having a voice for being um, courageous in how you live in a world that still is, disadvantages you. And um, yeah, I, I hope and pray that as a community we continue to um, grow in how we can listen and champion and um, be part of working towards a world that is um, more equal and that um, doesn't privilege yeah, one sort of person over another. So, yeah, thank you. Thanks for listening. If you want to check out more about Central, visit us at centralchurch.org.au. Music by Chris D'Souza, a beloved member of Central. Ha, ha, ha.